Welcome to the Housing Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors and the Center for California Real Estate. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another Housing Matters podcast. My name is Jordan Levine. I'm the Deputy Chief Economist here at CAR, and we're going to do something a little bit different this time. In mid-July, we released our mid-year forecast and had a whole webinar on that, and so we're going to go ahead and replay that forecast for you here. And if you'd like, you can always check out the webinar with the slides as a video on our website at car.org. So without further ado, I will let myself and Leslie Appleton-Young take it away on our 2019 mid-year forecast. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. It's one o'clock. We appreciate you maybe truncating your lunch, uh, lunch today to join us. We have some Um, We have a few updates on the forecast that we gave back at the expo in October, and you've already heard from Jordan Levine, our deputy chief economist. Jordan is fabulous, and we are going to be kind of tag teaming this and have a little bit of dialogue and a little bit of fun uh, this afternoon going through the going through the slides and talking about uh, the economy, the macro side a little bit, and then segueing into a deep dive into the various um, parts of the California uh, California housing market, and as you all know, real estate is very uh, is local. Um, however, there's there's a lot of similarities, you know, um, going on. And um, at the end, we'll give you our revised forecast. And even though the market will still be down slightly from what we saw in 2018, it's not going to be down by as much. So um, I call that good news, right, Jordan? Oh, yeah. At this point, we'll take what we can get. Right, exactly. So let's get started and uh, kind of just look at, again, we're kind of going to cover the um, um, macro economy um, briefly. Here's just a, a kind of a summary slide of where we are. And actually, first quarter GDP was pretty strong, right? I mean, we're pretty happy with that number, Jordan. Yeah, definitely. I mean, not just by the you know historical standards, which 3% is, is a fairly good number, but especially by the standards of the last couple of years where we haven't had a lot of growth. And so I think for us, the, the economy is probably the biggest strength right now. Right. And all that being said, I will I will point out that the projection for the year as a whole is going to be a growth rate of about 2.4 percent. So we are expecting um, a slowdown. Clearly, there's a lot of uncertainties in the market right now. We are kind of in a trade war already, but there is a question of is it going to ignite and really, you know, really take a, a, a deeper uh, left turn for uh, the economy. And um, we'll just have to kind of see how that how that goes. Also, a little bit of uncertainty about what the Fed's going to do, but we'll talk about that um, uh, that in a minute. Um, and European growth has slowed cons- considerably, and China as well. So when your trading partners are in trouble, it doesn't take too long before it affects other countries as well, including us. Right. And I think the the flip side of that, though, is that that's maybe why we're enjoying a bit of a reprieve on rates is when you know, the rest of the world becomes a bigger and bigger basket case. More and more people throw their money into U.S. bonds, and that really keeps those bond rates down, which we benefit from directly through uh, lower mortgage rates. Absolutely. And on the other side of of positive news, consumer spending uh, for the first quarter was up almost a full percentage point. And even though this isn't 
maybe what we're used to seeing. The reality is retail sales have been a little bit stronger than we expected over the last couple of months, and consumers are really hanging in there, in part reflecting what we're seeing uh, on the labor market side. Yeah, low unemployment. I think it's the lowest in like 55 years right now. It did go up, I think, a, a touch at 3.7%, but still extremely low levels, and yet we still continue to add jobs. We are, and our job growth is 1.5%, and to be perfectly clear, it would be much higher if we had a better match between where the jobs um, where the jobs are and the people having skills to meet those jobs. So there's still a bit of a, a mismatch there between who's hiring and what people are bringing to the table. So we're strong proponents here of um, of education, not stupid education. It's expensive. You don't want to get saddled with a ridiculous student loan for a degree that means nothing. But you really, you know, we're in a knowledge economy and honing the, that knowledge base is absolutely critical. And then the final element here that's really going to tie into our discussion about the future of rates is the core CPI in May was only 2%. And the Fed's been watching this very, uh, very carefully and actually are a little bit concerned, even though 2% CPI is their, is their target, it's been low and it's been below 2%. And they're a little bit concerned about that. Yeah, definitely. They want to keep the economy moving forward and continuing to grow. Um, you know, they're not supposed to be motivated by politics or anything like that, but there is a, a presidential election coming up. And so, you know, you're low to see an economy tank in any scenario, but especially one where there's lots of political implications. You know, and that does bring up a point, and I'll just address it right now. Over the years, we typically get the question when a an election year is looming about the market and is there a correlation between how the market behaves, what happens with rates and an election year? And the answer is actually not. And I don't know if you've looked at that since you've been here, Jordan, but we have over the years and there is not a, a discernible pattern there. Not really. I think in, in 2016, we saw maybe we stole a little bit of sales forward, but I don't know that that was necessarily as contingent on the presidential election as it was. I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty with what was going to happen with rates. We were seeing, you know, the Fed starting to raise rates at that time. And I think folks, you know, so it's really hard to untangle how much of it is political uh, versus just kind of what was going on in the economy at that time. But in any event, um, the effects were very small regardless. Right. And the politics is huge, right? You're on, you know, inundated with the 24 hour a day, um, a news cycle with everything going on. But the reality is people are going to work, they're doing their jobs and the, um, the unemployment rate is incredibly uh, low, so you've got that strength there, and the housing demand is really a reflection of that uh, of that growth coupled with the demographics, and those are just much bigger trends than who happens to be in the White House. So, um, you know, Republican, Democrat, liberal policies, conservative policies, you just don't see a clear pattern. So, if you're going to call us on that, that's the the answer there. So let's uh, show you a few more details. I think the next slide looks at um, unemployment a little bit, um, a little bit more detailed by region uh, in California. I believe this is the county data, right, Jordan? This is county data, yeah. And I think for me, the punchline here is is not to look at each individual number here on the right hand side, but a just to recognize that California had a much bigger problem with unemployment. Right, we were ground zero for the housing crisis back in 2008, 9, and 10 had much higher levels of unemployment, but we've chipped away at that at a much quicker pace, and such 
that that every single major county in California is now in the single digits. And some of these Fresno, Kern, San Joaquin were up in the you know 20, 25% range for unemployment. So even though that's not down at the kind of three or two percent levels that you see in the Bay Area, um, these are are very healthy numbers even in our more rural or agricultural based economies. Right. One thing I will point out, and you can see very clearly the the tightest labor markets are in the in the Bay Area, right? So that's a whole tech story. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the measure that we're looking at is the called U3. And essentially the question is, are you out of work but looking for work actively? And if you are, you're counted as unemployed. There's a much broader measure of unemployment called U6 that includes people that would love a job, but they're so frustrated they've really dropped out of actively looking for a job. There are people that are war working part-time when they really would like to be working full-time and people that are underemployed. You know, they have a, a degree or a skill, but they can't get employed in that particular um, activity. And pretty consistently, the U6 measure tends to be twice the U3 measure. So if you're looking at 3.7% and going, boy, that's really, really tight, and I know there's more pain out there than that's reflecting, there probably is. It depends how you measure it. And the other thing, when you slice and dice the data and look at demographic cohorts, when you look at, at age, so white males over the age of 55 or single female heads of households or black teenagers, those unemployment rates are quite a bit higher as well. So your unique um, personal experience may differ from this aggregate data um, for that reason. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving on, how are consumers feeling? Well, in May, they actually felt a little bit better. <laughs> in June, we had a little bit of a um, retreat. This is the monthly survey by the conference board. They survey 5,000 households every month and ask them questions about their current situation and then kind of expectational questions, maybe are you planning to buy a home or a car in the next six months? So they, or, or change jobs, those kinds of uh, questions. So it really captures kind of both sides of the market. And you can see it's been, I would say fairly volatile. I mean, the, definitely an upward trend since the bottom of the market um, 10 years ago um, and, and definitely a positive slope to that line. But people are jittery. Uh, it's hard to escape the news cycle um, cycle these days. So even with the continued strong uh, labor market, uh, we had a bit of a pullback um, in in June. And I don't know, Jordan, do you know what was going on? Is no, I main thing. I think that there's you know a lot of wobbles in the global economy. Again, the market's been all over the map of late in terms of the stock market. Um, you know, and I think that also consumers are kind of worried about what's coming down the pike. I think a lot of this weakness is rooted in expectations about the future more so than what's happening right now. Again, everybody's pretty much got a job who wants one and all of that good stuff. But we are 10 years into this expansion. It's becoming uh, close to one of the longest expansions that we've ever had. And so I think that that just automatically create some of that uncertainty. The other thing I would say is, is that consumers have run up a decent amount of debt. If you look at the overall debt numbers, they seem pretty healthy, but that's because everybody hasn't jumped back into the housing market and picked up a mortgage. If you break out mortgage debt separately and look at that side by side with consumer debt, consumers have actually racked up you know, decent balances on credit cards, auto loans, that kind of thing. And I think that, you know, 
they're they're getting to the limit of of how much they can continue to spend without more robust wage and income growth. Right. And I'll just reemphasize what Jordan said about confidence and, and uncertainty. And I think there's a, a real tie there. So there's just a lot of uncertainty. You know, I, I look back at the um, forecast that I presented back in October. And at that time, we expected rates to be over 5%. Um, by now, you know the whole the whole outlook was very different than what we're um, what we're facing now. So when there's no real um, certainty, then when you're yinging and yanging all the time, you you expect that to be reflected in how consumers are responding. I mean, one of the reports that came out last year, and again, Jordan mentioned, we are now officially in July, ten years into this um, recovery period, longest ever. And you had a consensus of, uh, of economists, analysts saying, boy, we are going to be in a recession in 2020. And when I'm asked that question, I say, well, I, I'm not sure. You know, I wouldn't bet on it. You know, it's not as if there's a timetable and, you know, all of a sudden it's 2020 and you go into a recession. There has to be something driving it. And even though this is the longest recovery, um, we're now getting into the longest uh, recovery that we've had, it hasn't seen the spectacular growth rates of four, five, and six percent that you've seen from some of the other post-war recoveries. So, you know, every cycle is unique. Uh, this one is too. And so this, this concern about 2020, you know, you have to tell the story that gets you there. And there's no problem. I mean, Jordan and I can spend a few hours telling you all the stories that'll get us to a 2020 recession, but it's not obvious today that that's going to happen. You don't have a lot of those kind of fundamental imbalances that were so prevalent back in 2006 and seven with over leveraged consumers, people with mortgages they couldn't afford, uh, et cetera, et cetera, people cashing out, refining. There's, there was a lot of structural issues bubbling under the surface before we actually hit that recession. You don't see a lot of that stuff. And we can talk all about uh, reasons why with the ninja loans and FICO scores and underwriting and all of that stuff. Yeah. But the moral of the story is that it takes a big imbalance correcting itself to drive those rece recessions. And, and we just don't see anything like that simmering right now. Right. I mean, the lending environment and housing is very, very different. I think people are looking at auto loans and certainly looking at student loans and seeing some concerns there. But in the, in the housing sector, we're just not going to see a repeat of uh, uh, 2008. Now, I said that, and I, I also feel like you never say never, but um, Jordan's absolutely right. Those fundamental imbalances that should have been screaming at us back then are not prevalent today. Right. And the other thing I would point out is just that even though consumers' confidence has kind of flattened out over the last four months or so, look at those levels. We're still basically at all-time high levels of consumer confidence, notwithstanding this kind of bumping around. And so even though, you know, we are forecasting a bit slower economic growth this year, partly because consumers won't be out quite as in force as they were last year, but they're still out there spending and we still expect growth. So let's move on and talk a little bit about rates. I alluded to this earlier. I think our projection, original projection for this year was I can't remember the number, but certainly we expected at some months during 2019 to have rates over over 5%. And our last weekly um, number at the end of um, uh, June, beginning of July was 3.75. Yeah. I mean, that's just like, oh, my go my goodness, what what um, what is going on? And I think maybe the bigger question is, why isn't it having more of an impact on the housing market? 
because you would expect, wow, rates are lower, let's go. But And this is something we'll be talking about during the rest of the presentation, what the inventory and affordability situation have really helped to numb this. Plus, something that uh, Jordan's done a lot of work on is the impact of, of uh, tax reform in the SALT cap, and that certainly had uh, an impact as well, right, Jordan? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you see tons and tons of people. I mean, fundamentally, what we did was we removed the incentive for home ownership from our federal tax code. And, and what we saw this year, and there's preliminary numbers coming out, but there's, you know, about 90% of folks actually just took the standard deduction going forward. It's twice as big as it was now. You get $24,000, uh, whether you rent or own or what have you. And and that seems to have kind of undermined the the kind of motivation for folks to enter at the, the bottom of the market, even with these low rates and even with the prospect of, you know, equity accumulation and all all of that stuff. And so, you know, low rates are great. We prefer lower rates to higher rates, um, but it's not giving the market that kick in the pants that we were expecting. So the Federal Reserve has kept the Fed funds rate flat since, what, January, December last year um, at 2.5%. We were expecting to see, um, I, I remember last summer, I think it was two to four increases yep. baked in. That That was definitely going to happen. And we heard a report today, Pal, saying that the outlook for the economy has not improved over the last couple of weeks. When they meet again at the end of the month, we are expecting to see an actual cut in the Fed funds rate. And that is, you know, pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I don't want to over-celebrate that because I think it does highlight some of this uncertainty in the in the bigger macro picture. You know, we, we love low rates again, but not if they're a signal of, of potential weaknesses coming down the pike. Right. Sometimes higher rates come with a stronger uh, a stronger economy, and that's really the price you pay. People want capital. They've got investments to make. So the next slide just kind of goes through a, just a, an example of looking at the median priced home, which is a little bit less than 550,000 in the first quarter, assuming um, a family puts down a 20% or the buyer puts down 20%, what happens to their monthly mortgage payment as rates change? So at let's say five and a half percent, the mortgage payment is a little bit shy of $2,500. When rates go down to 4%, you shave five hundred dollars off that monthly payment. You're at you're at close to two, um, close to two thousand. So the interest rate sensitivity of your monthly mortgage payment is um, kind of one of the uh, building blocks of the of our of our industry. And then the other other side of the slide just looks at the increase or decrease in qualifying income. So the takeaway here is affordability improves. As, rate go, as rates go down, but as we just discussed, we're not seeing quite the same elasticity of response um, in the housing market. I think we've seen some, and that's why we have a revision uh, in our forecast, but given the strength of the labor market and income growth and the level of rates, we ought to have a stronger market than we do. Absolutely. This one's interesting because I think it kind of highlights some of the stuff that Leslie was just talking about. So we, we know that prices continue to grow. Price growth is this dark blue line has, has no doubt slowed. And you can see that we're down in those low uh, single digits. But when you put that together 
with the interest rates and look at how much the the monthly payments are growing it's actually cheaper the monthly payment on the on the median priced home is actually cheaper today even though that home actually costs more today than it was a year ago and that's been true for the last three months in a row and so again these lower rates have really improved affordability this is the first time we've seen affordability actually go up uh, in about three and a half years and yet we're still not seeing that surge in transactions and actually even the mortgage application stuff is is pretty lackluster so we can't even really expect this big rebound coming down the pike over the next couple months either right and as many of you have experienced when buyers are out there looking for a home it's often not how much is the home it's what's my monthly nut and if that's gonna work I'm gonna be fine paying whatever that um, that amount is so the fact that you've had a decline in the monthly mortgage payment I think is significant and the fact again that that hasn't had as big a impact as we would have expected is really a testament to the housing affordability issue uh, in California that tends to kind of mute all stimulus That's right. <laughs> at this um, at this point um, so here's just a, a summary slide of some of the um, arguments that we've just talked about uh, in terms of why this very interest rate sensitive um, market uh, in California anyway just isn't quite as sensitive as it is before and we, we talked about the salt caps we've talked about the fact that affordability is um, is a burden um, we will give you a lot of data on on inventory and even though inventory is up from uh, last year and I'm sure you've experienced this um, uh, in your in your markets it's still below what we would consider normal you know you have to keep everything in context here inventories up active listings are up absolutely and depending on what segment of the market you're looking at it's a it's a different story at the high high end of the market it's taking a much longer time to sell properties a, a year or more in, in some areas yeah. looking at um, high in the Orange County uh, data that we get from Steve um, uh, Steve Thomas and the the tightness of the inventory also means that there just isn't a lot of incentive to get in there when you just don't have a lot of choice you know and at the affordable end of the market where things are the most active the first-time buyers just don't have a lot to look at that's right so do you want to do this one? yeah and there's a lot of other stuff that could potentially come down the pike these are um, you know question marks at this point but these are things that we're we're considering when we're revamping these forecasts because you know it's not just the rates there's also what's happening in the stock markets most of these people are, are purchasing homes out of wealth or at least are indirectly impacted in their housing decisions on wealth and and there is evidence that the markets a bit frothy on the stock market side we don't know what the the FHA is going to look like we don't know what's going to happen with Fannie and Freddie or or what the you know political uh, realities of that are going to actually unfold to be and and again what's going to happen with with impacts from from tax reform and things like that those things are going to continue to play out we really are only getting our very first peak at the impacts of tax reform because you know people have just recently finished filing their taxes and fully realizing the overall implications and of course you know getting closer to home there's a lot of major economic events coming down the pike especially in the bay area with ipos and things like that i mean it's it's hard to envision injecting that much cash into markets with two percent unemployment and two months of supply uh seeing anything but you know more tightness to the market coming down the pike there
Right. It's one of my um, um, one of the agents that I know up in Silicon Valley said to me, you know, when people are, um, over, you know, bidding over list three hundred thousand dollars and paying in cash, it's not savings. <laughs> you know, it's related to uh, to this kind of uh, um, IPO situation. So let's talk a little bit about um, not a little. Let's talk a lot about um, a lot housing and why we're here. And one of the things we started to do last year was a monthly poll of California consumers, and we do it on a on Google. Uh, we launch it on Friday and Monday. We'll have 300 responses, and again, it's just the pulse of the market. And in June, we actually had a pretty good increase in the number of people saying, is it a good time to buy a home in California? So it's still only about a quarter um, of the respondents, but it's up from 22%. And I would probably say that's a rate-driven rate phenomenon. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, if you can afford more house or have the same house for less money, then uh, that's attractive. We know from our survey research that people still desire home ownership. It's just a question of wherewithal, right? And so I think that's what you're seeing here. Absolutely. And then do you think it's a good time to sell? Um, I've been waiting for things to come back up after the um, uh, April and May numbers because it is, and you're seeing that reflected in the increase in, in, in active listings, so 51% there. So let's kind of look at the summary. The latest data that we have available um, right now is, um, is May, uh, and year-to-date the market's off 6%. We don't think it will be off that much for the year um, as a whole, but for the first five months of this year, we're off 6% compared to last year, and in May, we were off 6% um, on an, a year-over-year -year, um, year -year basis. Uh, price appreciation has been uh, hovering around uh, 2% for a while. Uh, we have reached um, a couple of times, uh, we have reached our highest a maximum median home price that we've ever recorded, and I think May was another one, May right, May was Jordan? another one, yeah. Yeah, so it's 611,190. We have 3.2 months supply of uh, months of um, inventory on the market, and that's up um, from last year. Uh, days on the market, believe it or not, at 18 is up uh, from last year. And the sales price to list price ratio is actually down a little bit, but it's still not that far from 100, 99.3%. Yeah, if you got to make a 0.7% concession, that's not the end of the world. So let's just look at this, and and I I think this is a a very telling graph uh, in terms of what the conundrum for housing in California is. So we we bottomed out um, from the financial crisis in the fall of 07. We came roaring back because you could buy property for less than replacement costs, certainly in the Central Valley, but prices were very affordable and the investors were the first ones um, out there. Then we had the um, uh, federal tax incentives, the state. And then essentially starting around 2011, um, 2010, we've been pretty much bumping up and down around uh, 400,000. And that, I think, is very disappointing when you consider the demand side of the equation and just the strength in jobs, the return of household formation, the millennials moving out of their parents uh, or their childhood uh, rooms and, and forming families, record low 
mortgage rates, all of those things together, you know, you just would think we'd be, you know, at 500,000 at least, right. right? And here we are with a very, um, I don't know, repressed level um, of, of sales activity. And we are looking at pretty strong demographic growth. In fact, 2019, we will reach 40 million uh, residents in California. And I know this number in 1970, we had 20 million. Yep. So it's taken us just a little bit shy of 50 years to double the population in California. And yet we have lower transactions today than we did when we had much fewer people in California. Yeah, so I think that makes it not just hard for the on the consumer side, obviously, but it makes it hard for for us as realtors and the real estate professionals. You know, we've got uh, all these folks who want to buy homes, not a lot of homes to be able to sell them, and lots of realtors competing for that business. Yeah, very competitive, and we'll say more about that in a little bit. So we'll just go through these um, uh, maybe a little bit faster because I, I is this one hour? I think it's an hour. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's one thirty already. So um, this. Uh, is just a way to sh to show the year-to-year -year change by price um, by price bucket, and the million and above are the weaker areas. And I wouldn't pay too much attention to the the under three hundred thousand because there honestly just isn't a whole lot of product when you look at the state of, as a whole um, uh, in that in that area. So you can see it's really the upper end of the market that's that's really dragging uh, things down. Yeah, and this is a shift from last year. You know, at the, at the same time last year going into summer, uh, the top end was still growing by a considerable amount and that was actually bolstering our overall numbers. The bottom end's been struggling for a long time and I agree the, the 300,000 and under is basically a unicorn at this point. You don't see them out in the wild uh, too, <laughs> too often. But uh, but the big change here is, I think, coming at the top end, which, again, was growing and now isn't. Right, right. So the next slide will just show you kind of, um, I think this is fascinating, 47% of the market is in Southern California. The Bay Area, um, 20%. Uh, Central Valley, 22%. Uh, Central Coast, 4%. And then up in um, inland and northern uh, Northern California are the other seven percent. So, you know, when you look at at what's uh, talked about uh, in the media, you kind of get the idea that the San Francisco area is probably like eighty percent of our market, but that's that's really um, really not the case. Southern California is literally um, almost half. But what's interesting on the other side of the graph is to see the San Francisco Bay Area in May was the only region that actually was up on a year-over-year -year basis, um, not by much, a little bit less than 1%, but it definitely was defying the trends of the rest of the state. So moving on, here is a look at sales in the Bay Area. We've broken these out by county. And when we get to the end of this, Jordan will talk about the city statistics that we have available on our website, because I know for many of you, you're looking at the county and going, well, that's okay, but I'd really like to know what's going on in this city. Well, we have city data for over 400 cities in California that is updated every month. You can download an, uh, an infographic, you can Instagram it, you can get a slide. We're, we're really excited about that. So we'll just stick with the counties for this presentation, but Jordan, you'll, you'll- All that stuff's out there for show, um, show, um 
um, all that stuff. So even though the May uh, the May numbers were up for the for the region as a whole slightly on a year over year basis, year to date you can see the Bay Area except for um, San Francisco, Marin, and Alameda is experiencing that. Um, statewide decline that we saw earlier, which is about 6%. Yeah, still an inventory issue. Yeah, very much an inventory issue. Um, here's Southern California. Again, you can see the, the May numbers are a mixed bag, but year to date, uh, we're, we're down. Um, the drop in San Bernardino is pretty significant, down 12.5% uh, year to date. And I think is part of that an inventory? I think part of that's them? inventory, but I also think that's where we're starting to see some of the cracks of the tax reform side too. If you go back to last year before people had done their taxes, the Inland Empire was really what was kind of bolstering um, the, the rest of Southern California, which is, you know, less affordable and, and things like that. And you saw the same thing in the Far East Bay or in Sacramento, or some of those markets were actually uh, overperforming because they were more affordable. And I think that now that you see some of these more affordable areas starting to come down as well, it really highlights not just the issues that we're having at the top end of the market, but how um, we really kind of discourage folks at the bottom as well. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, next we've got um, the Central Valley. And the Central Valley, again, um, not really, a lot of, uh, you know, there's no outliers in terms of the year-to-date changes. Everybody's down a little bit, except for Glen County, which is so small. I'm sorry, Glen County. Uh, there were only 18 closings um, in <laughs> yeah, exactly. in May, but we're, we we appreciate your you being here for sure. Um, and then here we've got the Central Coast, and the Central Coast has been absolutely booming uh, as more people are working remotely. It is the perfect location for a remote work where maybe you go in a couple times a month, either in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, or down in um, or down in Southern California. And it, it is right, absolutely booming um, uh, there. So very, very strong. Um, and then here uh, is a look at some of the more rural um, rural counties, uh, please note that the, the numbers, the actual number of sales are typically um, fairly uh, small. Um, El Dorado, no. Calaveras, um, no. So the percentage changes kind of tend to magnify um, magnify what's going on. And this, this tends to be a little bit disconnected. I mean, some of these are uh, retirement areas, some of these are vacation areas, and they tend to kind of lag what's going on in the coastal areas. I don't know, the rule of thumb has always been about um, about um, 18 months. But again, as people are finding it um, more and more possible to work remotely, I think you're going to see renewed interest in uh, in living in, in, in areas that aren't just completely choked by, um, by traffic. And same thing pretty much everywhere else in the state. You know, you see that there's, uh, you know, struggles even in a lot of these markets that usually do take a, a while to respond and yet we're still seeing some of these kind of broader effects that we've been talking about up to this point playing themselves out even in some of these kind of far-flung areas okay let's talk about prices a little bit i think I already covered this in the in the chart you can see we've had a very strong recovery so when you look at the transaction side of things i think there's a a disappointment in this inability to really have liftoff. But when you look at prices, um, you've had a very strong 
um, recovery pretty much uh, pretty much throughout, and especially this year with the two months where we've seen um, all-time highs, that's been pretty um, significant. The price growth has been strongest at the entry-level part um, of the market, and as, as we'll see later, that's one of the dynamics that's playing itself out in formerly affordable areas like the Inland Empire, Riverside, and San Bernardino, because the local you know, people that have lived there a long time are finding themselves priced out of the home ownership market because of the gains um, there. So there's a lot of um, <clears throat> dislocation um, happening. Uh, so strength there at the upper end of the market where sometimes prices are a little bit like the art market. You know, what's someone willing, uh, willing to pay? You have very savvy sellers. Um, I was in San Francisco recently and, and heard that the San Francisco homeowners will hold on the longest for the price that they think their property should um, should fetch, even in the face of all data to the yeah. contrary, um, that the market has changed. So we are seeing, and this data might be able to help anyone that's in that uh, position in the top 20th percentile of sales, you've had a drop in prices of 1.4%. Um, and now we won't go through all this. I'm a little bit concerned about our time thing, but just so you know, here's all the um, uh, data looking at median uh, prices. And you just look at San Mateo and San Francisco and Marin County, and those numbers are uh, pretty stunning. They're not, um, they're not typos. Uh, Southern California, a lot more diversity in the, in the housing stock um, there. Central Valley looks almost like a typo. Many of those counties just look unbelievably affordable. And again, that will be continue to be a huge advantage for spurring growth in the years um, ahead. Um, the Monterey data or the data for the Central Coast is a little bit strange because you have a, you know, a, a county like Monterey with Salinas and Carmel. Carmel or Santa Barbara where you've got Santa Barbara and then you've got um, Lompoc or whatever, yeah. you know, so you just, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a mixed bag there. And then here we have the, the uh, Northern California counties. And you can kind of see what Leslie was saying before that these aren't kind of a one size fits all. You've got places like Mono County and Mammoth and things like that, which are big vacation markets and have more expensive homes. And then some of these are more kind of rural farming communities, but, uh, that's where those guys are. So um, inventory, um, if you were to ask me what is normal inventory, up until about 2010, I would have told you six to seven months supply, no problem. But when you look at what's happened since then for the last um, 10 years, I would say normal inventory is in the range of three, um, three to four months. I don't think it will be as tight as it's been, but it's not gonna get back. I think we have a new normal um, in terms of uh, inventory, in large part because, as we all know, boomers aren't moving like their parents uh, did, and we're not building like California used to build for a whole variety of, of, uh, of reasons. So our, our unsold inventory index is the ratio of listings to sales. So at 3.2 months, that just says at the current rate property is selling, I will have diminished my supply in 3.2 Month so up a little bit, but I would say still, still on the tighter side. You know, still, it's just a change. Yeah, it's still pretty brutal out there for the buyers who want yeah. to find homes to buy. Yeah, and and you can see that it's 
particularly tight at the bottom end, under 750,000. We're talking about sub three months of, of supply. But, uh, you know, even at the top end, it's still fairly tight by the standards of the top end. I mean, you think about 3 million plus at 8.4 months of supply, that's typically in the double digits, right? And so uh, it's tight across the board, but you can see that those more recent numbers, these baby blue, whatever color that is, are, are slightly higher. And that is a, a function of these new active listings that we've seen come online. But when you take a step back, these numbers are, are very low by historical standards. So talking about active listings, I just love this slide because it, it shows you the year-over-year -year change in active listings. And there has been a shift in the market. It started in 2018. And it actually started in January of 2018 because you can see that's when the year-over-year -year decline started to get smaller, January, February, March. And then in April is when we actually saw a positive increase in the number of active listings. That peaked in November and December has been coming down. And at 7.4% gain in May, it's the smallest we've seen since last um, April. So the market is rebalancing itself with the surge, um, and I say that in quote, air quotes here, the surge um, in, um, in active listings. You know, when people ask me, you know, what's the one thing I should be looking at in order to tell what's gonna be happening in the market in the future, I always say watch inventory, because inventory will tell you everything about where um, where the market is going. Yeah, and this one's encouraging for me because we don't just see those listings going up and up and up. And that's why I think that we're not forecasting this kind of massive decline in the housing market. We see it, I think, as Leslie rightly said, it's becoming more balanced, right? It's not this mass exodus where we just see more and more and more listings coming on at an ever increasing rate. Some people are choosing to cash in and move out of state. Some people are uh, finally moving after staying put for a long time, but it's not that kind of uh, massive untangled. Of the no, and it's not like what we saw in 2008 and 2009, where the properties just went there and sat for a while. I mean, properties are moving. It's just absolutely critical to price the property correctly. And by that, I mean, don't overprice it or you're going to be following the market down. So I think the pricing strategies that worked in the market in 2017 don't work in the market in 2019. So the next slide um, shows you that the increase in active listings has been um, in the 500K and above, uh, fairly consistent. And in the affordable range, which would be under 500, we just don't have a lot, a lot available, right? That's, right. That's a, a, a constraint. And the, the growth that you're seeing is happening, you know, across the state. I get asked this all the time, like, is it just people dumping properties in San Francisco because it's too overpriced or anything like that? But you, you really see it pretty much uh, across the board. But again, it's not this kind of wholesale exodus from the market. We're just finally getting back to something more balanced where homes are, are actually going up for sale again a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, and then, oh, okay, great. Um, housing. Yeah, that's fine. Housing affordability. If you sold someone a house in 2012, call them and go celebrate because that was the time to buy uh, in California. But as Jordan noted, you know, the, the, the other side of, of, um, of lower rates and, and slowing price appreciation is an increase in 
um, in housing affordability. So that's a, a plus there. And then you can see the, the gap with, um, uh, with the nation, which has been there for, um, for almost ever. Yeah, and this one I think is is one of the more scary ones. You know, we have had a small bounce back in affordability of late, but you know, if you look out across the state, it's not just San Francisco or Marin County or um, you know Santa Cruz or even LA and Orange County that are unaffordable. I mean, with the exception of Kings and Lassen County, which I think you know aren't known for being humongous job and employment centers. Um, every other county in California has worse housing affordability than the rest of the United States. I mean, you look at the state as a whole, and at 32%, that means that you know only a third of Californians can actually afford the median-priced home, which by definition means that two-thirds cannot afford the median-priced home. And that's a challenge for us as realtors. It's a problem for home ownership, and that's going to become a bigger problem for our economy, right? We've continued to outperform because we've had this big, great economy, but if no one can afford to live here, they don't want to live here because they can't, you know, pay the, the exorbitant rents or what have you and go to Denver or wherever else, then it's going to become an issue not just for realtors, but for Californians as a whole. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Um, the next slide also sums up what the challenge is in terms of um, of incomes. We've got kind of average wages for all of these really critical parts of the of any community, you know, teachers, nurses, firefighters. And yet the um, the only area where the only field where you have an average income that exceeds what you need to buy the median priced home is a software developer. So, you know, you need to find a friend or <laughs> or get married. And actually, there's a very strong correlation between, you know, marriage and children and, and buying homes. But it takes it really takes two most of the most of the time. Yeah, and you can see that, you know, kind of playing itself out in the in the home ownership numbers. We're getting dangerously close here in California to becoming a majority renter state. I think there's already about 140 and and that number will probably continue to go up when we get the numbers for 2018, but there's already a, you know, over 100 cities, major cities in California that are already majority renter. And if you look at the US number, they've had a decent little resurgence in uh, home ownership lately. We've only had just a little baby blip in in last year. And actually, if you look at the first quarter numbers for 2019, uh, home ownership actually retreated again back in California while it continues to grow in the rest of the United States. So it's a problem not just for our business, but again, uh, being able to offer people the American dream. And I think this um, this slide might shock you as much as it it shocked me. Um, these are the cities that are already majority renter. We think by 2025, the entire state will go majority renter. But look at the areas that, I mean, Burbank, California, Long Beach, California, uh, Los Angeles, you expect to see um, San Francisco, but Salinas. And what's interesting is how many cities are affordable. You know, you think of any city in the Central Valley as being affordable and yet it's all relative right in Lodi the pro the prices are very affordable compared to the Bay Area but the incomes are so much lower 
um, lower as as well. So that really is the challenge. You know, we've looked for years at the inland part of California to kind of save us, right? Because that's where it was easy to build and it was affordable. Well, it's not really easy to build there anymore. And for the people that live there, those cities are no longer um, no longer affordable. So you've got some migration patterns happening, which will um, which will show. And I I think that the issue has to do with um, the lack of supply of housing will eventually create a situation where the demand moves somewhere else, you know, and, um, you know, growth is an interesting thing to think about just philosophically. Um, can you grow forever? How much growth is good growth? But I think one of the things we could probably all agree on is you need some growth to keep your economy um, um, vibrant, right? To, to continue to provide and be competitive in the, in the world. And we have um, a huge issue with that that could really be, um, I think 30 years ago, we said housing affordability was the Achilles heel of the California economy, and it still is. Yep, and, and the kind of proof is in the pudding, right? We've lost three quarters of a million people, that's on net. So that's even after accounting for all the folks who moved here to take jobs in Silicon Valley or whatever, people who came to our universities, even after subtracting all those folks out, we've lost 750,000 people. And again, this is why we say that the home ownership and the housing affordability issue is gonna become an economic issue because these aren't the, the kind of very high income, wealthy uh, retirees that are leaving. The you know We actually had more Millennials and Gen Xers move out of the state than baby boomers. Um, and most of those folks, actually almost every single one, made under $100,000 when you look at the net numbers, right? And so these are folks who are being oppressed by not the tax regime, but the cost of housing. And, and that's going to hit us right in our economy because we have these great companies with great jobs that need filling. And our workers, the ones who we need filling those jobs, are the ones kind of pouring across the state line. Right. And to be clear, I mean, the overall population of California is growing, but it's growing because people are having children here and we are getting positive immigration from outside of the country. But we're just looking at the flows from other states into California and from California out to other states. And this net domestic migration has been going on for nine nine years yeah and actually the 2018 number just came out and we lost another hundred and something thousand so this this stuff continues to persist so i jordan did this analysis um last year and i just i'll let him talk about it because i just think it is absolutely fascinating to see where people are going yeah and i this is you know what i've kind of cheekily called the 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 migration two-step, but this is kind of exactly what Leslie was talking about, where you see, you know, everything is relative. And so you get folks in those kind of Bay Area uh, expensive markets where the median price is $1.6, $1.7 million, and they look at a Lodi or a San Joaquin or even moving as far as Sacramento, um, you know, and, and those markets are very attractive. Homes are much more affordable. And so you see most of that out-migration is to some of these more affordable kind of adjacent, quote unquote, communities to the Bay Area. But the, the two-step part of it is that, you know, if you look at a market like Sacramento, um, where all these people from the Bay Area are pouring into and, and thereby pushing up prices, right? They're bringing their higher incomes, their potentially their equity that they cleared out of the Bay Area, and that pushes up prices in Sacramento. And so when you look at where folks in Sacramento are going, they're actually the ones getting pushed out of the state, right? And so people who grew up in Sacramento, lived there their whole 
lives, um, can no longer afford to be homeowners there and are looking at places like Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, um, Texas and Arizona were a little bit further down the list. But, you know, that's that's the challenge is that, you know, there's only so far we can push people until they're no longer Californians right, anymore. Right. All right, and then here's the Southern California. Same um, exact, exact story. Yeah. You know, you see people from LA, Orange County pouring into Riverside, San Bernardino, um, almost 250,000 of them, in fact. But if you look at the Inland Empire, uh, people are going to Texas, Nevada, Arizona. Some are going to Bakersfield, but by and large, they're going to these neighboring states, which much more affordable housing. You know, some of you may have seen in the um, issue of The Economist that came out. Uh, last week did a compare and contrast of California and Texas and it was absolutely fascinating because I was reading this as I was flying back east but I had a layover in San Antonio so you know I'm leaving Southern California where there's you know very little kind of subdivision growth going on and then I'm flying over Texas and it's just amazing you know there's I could just see construction going on um, everywhere, but they really are. I, I highly recommend the article. They didn't spend enough time talking about housing, but it was a very interesting uh, look at uh, different attitudes, you know, and you think of California as being kind of the left coast, but it's in Texas where, you know, there's no zoning, you know, and you get to do what you want and you build. And so they don't have the kind of supply constraint uh, that we're having, even though they are also an economic uh, uh, juggernaut. Um, I, I've also put in this presentation just a, a shout out to the Milken uh, Institute report on the best performing cities. Um, the, the author of it, Ross Duval, I actually was in graduate school with him at Penn, so I always like to to, uh, to shout out what a great job he's he's done with this. But essentially, he has a it's a fairly detailed methodology, but it's essentially a way of identifying what parts of the country are kind of the leading edge cities for the new economy, if you will, with, with uh, you know, looking at their, um, you know, in, uh, wages and climate and housing and everything that kind of makes a great quality of life. And what's interesting about this list when you look at the top 10 is how many of these areas are not um, in California. And number one is in um, Utah. We've got you know, Silicon Valley as number two, but just look at the diversity. Um, you know, two are from uh, Texas. You've got Washington, you've got uh, Florida, you've got Colorado. So it's just a kind of a reality check for all of us Californians to realize that in this, you know, 50 years ago, it was East Coasters, Midwesterners coming to California. And what you, having, what you have now and what Jordan showed the beginning of, I think is a rebalancing back. And I would argue that it's a housing story. And I think that's, that's what we, we see. You know, if you can't imagine yourself being able to buy a home and raise a family, maybe the weather issue is something you can, you know, compromise on. Yeah, we were joking about, you know, all the people moving to, to Arizona and who wants to live in Phoenix. But when you can get a four bedroom house for 200 grand with a pool and keep your AC on the whole time, then that's attractive. Right, exactly. Uh, so the next one, again, just looks at the biggest gains among large cities, which I only included because Merced um, had was the biggest improvement, if you will. And I, I can't help but think that's in part two to UC Merced. And I'm really 100%. excited about that. Right. And then here's the um, the top 10 
performing small cities. And again, small cities are more and more relevant every year as people are becoming interconnected and working, um, working remotely. So we're going to kind of um, start to close out here a little bit by just kind of reaffirming that people still want to own, millennials want to own, but just the hurdles of becoming a homeowner are insurmountable. If you don't have a, a boomer parent that can write you a, a check to help with your down payment, if you're looking at savings, it's 15, 16, 17 years before you can have enough to really seriously get into the market in some parts of California. Absolutely. And it's not for a lack of desire, right? 70 plus percent still want to become homeowners. It's that they can't make it a reality, not that they don't want it. And, and you know, this is the, the sad part, you know, because I think that even with these big structural headwinds and, and issues that we need to address in the policy arena and things like that, um, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for us to educate folks because they think they need 30 to 40 percent down payments and definitely more than 20 percent. And I think that that's a, a bridge that we can gap or as, as a kind of real estate community, because if people thought they could get in with less money down than 30 or 40%, 70% would, and yet, you know, 70% have never heard of things like FHA and other low down payment loans. And so, you know, the, the environment is challenging, but it's nothing to kind of get discouraged about. It just means we have to work that much harder to kind of overcome some of these things. So I want to just close with a couple of slides looking at, at our industry. This is a um, a chart that has both the membership in the California Association uh, of Realtors in blue and sales in um, that teal color. And what I've noticed over the last six or seven years is kind of a disconnect between that typical relationship where, you know, the market would peak and two years later membership would peak or the market would bottom and two years later membership would bottom. But during this kind of unique period where sales have been relatively flat, for eight or nine years, we've still had an increase in um, in membership. And so what that's meant is that sales per member is really low. You know, if you take our total membership and the total number of sides in California, it's 3.9 sides um, per member. Now, the, the, the good news for all of you is they're not all active in real estate, right? Yeah. But just looking at those numbers, uh, when in most industries, technological change has created a, a boom in productivity, we haven't seen that um, on the housing um, side. But what we do find is when you look at average earnings, there does still tend to be a very close relationship between that and membership. So we've had to kind of expand uh, what we what we listen to. So on the on the positive side, um, your competition is not the 210,000 California realtors that we had in California in 2018. It's you and everyone. It's you yesterday and anyone working harder than you do. So just just keep working hard. So um, I guess we'll close now with uh, thanks for hanging in all this time with the uh, with the forecast. Do you want to do that, George? Yeah, definitely. So you can see here that we're um, not quite as bullish on the economy this year, but we do still see ongoing growth. The GDP number should be up by about 2.4% when all the dust settles. We'll continue to add jobs at about 1.5%. We do think we'll hold steady the rest of this year around these kind of historically low levels 
uh, of unemployment. We do not see this big surge in wages or incomes or consumer prices from abroad driving up uh, the consumer price index. And as a result, we think that the Fed will probably lower rates at least one time, if not this next meeting, definitely in uh, September. And, and therefore, we think that the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is probably going to settle in somewhere around 4% when you factor in the kind of 4.1 to 4.2s that we had right at the beginning of the year to the kind of, uh, you know, sub 4% rates that we have now. That's where things will end up from a macro standpoint. And this is kind of where we see things shaken out from, from the housing side. So not quite as pessimistic on closed transactions. We do think that we'll end up below 400,000 closed sales this year, but only down about 4.3% compared to what we had envisioned at the end of last year, which is a, a negative 7%. And so I think that largely this is attributable to the fact that um, affordability has improved as these rates have come down and that, you know, while it hasn't been enough to kind of reverse course on the declines that we've seen on the market, it has helped some folks kind of make that jump into home ownership. Unfortunately, we don't see a big resurgence in housing affordability, and that's partly because, you know, prices will still go up by about 4% this year. Again, as, you know, those low interest rates create a little bit more demand, we're still relatively tight on the supply side, and so prices should continue to go up. And so, again, not huge relief on the housing affordability front because that, that, extra demand will wipe some of that out, but also nothing to panic about either, right? This is actually uh, less pessimistic than we were six months ago, and that's good news for all of you. Absolutely. So key takeaways, low rates are good. Um, Oops. I'm all <laughs> over the good. Um, prices reaching um, new highs, so we're not we're not seeing, except at the ultra high end, yep. uh, too much weakness um, weakness there. We've got a lot of um, policy uncertainty, uh, economics uncertainty with our trading partners. It's having an impact, and we actually think we are going to see a rate cut at the end of July. Affordability remains our Achilles heel, and you are all to be commended for working in such a highly competitive market and serving your clients so well. And I'm gonna, Jordan is gonna show you where to get all this amazing information that we have on cities right now. So listen up because it's very cool. Yeah, definitely. So uh, shameless plug for ourselves here, but hopefully very useful for you. If you go to this web, uh, car.org website and you click on our Industry 360 link there at the very top of the page, um, you'll actually be able to go to our interactive market statistics. And there you will find all of these beautiful uh, city reports that Georgia, our graphics designer, um, has created for us. And these are out there for 400 of the largest cities in California. This is the, the kind of Instagrammable version there. Um, these are updated on a monthly basis. They're just ready to go. You can download them on your phone or on your computer or what have you and share them out uh, wherever you want. We also have um, our podcast, which you can come and nerd out with Oscar and I every couple of weeks. And, and we always love to just chat about whatever's happening in the news that we think you guys need to know about. Um, and with all of that shameless self-promotion out of the way, I will say thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, everybody. It's been um, a lot of fun. We certainly look forward to um, hearing from you. If you have any questions, I'm Leslie A. at car.org, uh, Jordan L. at car.org, uh, and we hope you have a very, very excellent second half of the year.